1: It's Monday, March 13th, 2023, the 782nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'myourmoderator.substack.com. So before we get into bank collapses and the like, I figured maybe we could start this week with a bit of a cultural reset of our understanding about history provided by Peter Hitchens this weekend in the Daily Mail. The headline is, End this crude smear against conservatives. Hitler's Nazis were, in fact, left wing racists. And Hitchens is going to discuss a man named Gary Lineker, who is a sports television host in the UK. The real problem with Gary Lineker is that he knows about as much about politics as I know about football. But while you will never catch me giving my opinion on soccer, Mr. Lineker thinks his TV and advertising fame qualifies him to discuss politics and history. Actually, it is amazing how little so many people know about these things. Although modern school history seems to cover nothing apart from the wives of Henry VIII and Hitler, nobody seems to know one crucial fact. The Nazis were very left wing. They hated Christianity and deliberately set children against their parents. They imposed penal taxes on the middle class and attracted communists to their ranks. They wrecked Germany's schools, insisting, sound familiar, that they taught mad dogmas instead of proper knowledge. Like all bad left-wing causes, they were very popular with students. If you take the forest path up from the pretty university town of Heidelberg, you will find, half lost among the trees, a large, disused Nazi amphitheater where the students used to hold torchlight rallies and sing their hateful songs. The Nazis even combined with the communists to organize a joint tram strike in Berlin, and they happily engaged in an alliance with Stalin in 1939, holding a joint Nazi-Soviet victory parade in the conquered Polish city of Brest-Litovsk. About the same time, the secret police forces of the communist USSR and Nazi Germany engaged in an amicable prisoner swap. The Nazis hated German conservatives and they hated democratic German socialists. An amazing fact emerges from Julia Boyd's superb recent book, Travelers in the Third Reich. She describes how a Swiss academic, Denis de Rougemont, lived for some time in Frankfurt in the Nazi area with the advantage of speaking and understanding German perfectly. This allowed him to have the private conversations with ordinary Germans, which most foreign visitors could not. He began by thinking that Hitler's regime was right wing. But as Julia Boyd writes, what unsettled him was the fact that those who stood most naturally on the right lawyers, doctors, industrialists, and so on, were the very ones who most bitterly denounced national socialism. Far from being a bulwark against communism, they complained, it was itself communism in disguise. They pointed out that only workers and peasants benefited from Nazi reforms, while their own values were being systematically destroyed by devious methods. They were taxed disproportionately, their family life had been irreparably harmed, Parental authority sapped, religion stripped, and education eliminated. A lawyer's wife complained to him Every evening, my two children are taken over by the party. And those of you who have noticed the stripping of patriotism and Christianity from the scouts and guides, cubs and brownies over the last 20 years might note that this attack on old values through schools and children follows a carefully devised pattern in both the Third Reich and Stalin's police state. As Hitler said, sneering gently, when an opponent declares, I will not come over to your side, I say calmly, your child belongs to us already. What are you? You will pass on. Your descendants, however, now stand in the new camp. In a short time, they will know nothing but this new community. No doubt someone will point out that the Nazis were also appalling and murderous racial bigots. This is true, but so is Stalin who was preparing an anti-Semitic purge just before his death in 1953. Several communist countries did hold anti-Jewish purges in the early 1950s. Karl Marx, himself a Jew, was famously anti-Semitic. Much of the modern left is suspiciously hostile to Israel for sins which they overlook in other countries. I would say we should always be on the lookout for dangerous fanatics from all directions. But the assumption, common on the BBC and in schools and universities for 50 years now, that conservative politics is a form of Nazism and that a desire to control immigration will lead directly to the death camps should be rejected by any thinking, knowledgeable person. Relax, Gary, that doesn't include you. So that's for all those people out there who say that Nazism is right wing, therefore MAGA being on the right, is also some form of Nazism. That makes no sense. It's not historically true, and we can see it acting out in reality right now. All you have to do is compare what the regimes did and who's supporting all of it. And I made this little meme infographic a few months back. I posted every now and again. But it breaks down the things the Nazis did, things communists did, and then things that the regime right now in illegitimate power is doing, supporting or planning as part of the global regime's agenda. And it turns out they're all the same things. They can be accurately described as having been enacted by the regimes of the past, and we can see them happening right now on the list of things that Nazis did. Censorship and propaganda. Everybody knows about that segregation, forced medical experimentation, eugenics to create superhumans. That's basically the same as what the transhuman movement looks to do right now. Funded and deployed Nazi armies. Well, they certainly did that. And it turns out that we're doing that, too, right now in Ukraine. Who's supporting it? Certainly not MAGA. Concentration camps. Well, we do have those in the world right now by the global regime. They have them in China. There are other parts of the world that discussed and have been attempting to create quarantine camps. And to the extent that concentration camps were not only about killing and torture and re-education, but they were also work camps that people couldn't leave. Well, we have versions of that all over the world today, too. Ethnic division and discrimination. Well, they're all about that. False flag events to stoke hate. As I've said many times, January 6th is the American Reichstag fire, and then they just pulled another one of those down in Brazil a couple months ago. Persecution of political opponents, censored, debanked, held as political prisoners of the regime, called domestic terrorists, even for things as simple as showing up at your kid's school board meetings to express displeasure that the school is covering up the rape of a girl in school By a boy in school who was wearing a dress and in the girl's bathroom. That really happened in Loudoun County, Virginia. And they illegally changed laws outside the bounds of their constitution. They used the Reichstag fire to actually do that. And they've used similar instances in America to do it as well. They took away our civil liberties in the Patriot Act after 9-11. And they moved to do this legislatively as well as culturally in the aftermath of the January 6th false flag event. Things communists did. Imprisoned political opponents, indoctrination and re-education. The regime's doing that right now. Erasure of history, the seizure of property and businesses, food shortages and famine. We're seeing that in different parts of the world. There have been various shortages in the United States over the last couple of years, all caused by regime policies. And we can imagine that we'll see more of that work camps, as I mentioned, censorship and propaganda. The communists do that just the same as the Nazis. They want to control all information. They want to make everyone equal. And so to do that, they have to enforce compliance and create a system of rewards and incentives for compliance with the agenda. All the decisions are made by groups of bureaucrats and groups of experts. You're told to trust all those people. It's too complicated for you to ever know what to do. So you have to defer to them. The state has all of them under its employ, naturally, which means that the word of the state is the word of the experts. And therefore, if you're not going to do what the state tells you, you're claiming to somehow be above all these experts. You must be smarter than all of the experts. And so you're shouted down in silence and eventually destroyed if you don't go along with the whole thing. And of course, they also attempt to change the language, literally the meaning of words. They attempt to change the rules of math. We all thought that Orwell, that 1984 was some kind of dystopian vision. That could never happen in reality. And then a couple of years ago, during the very scary part of the pandemic, there was actually a an extended argument on Twitter about how math was racist. And there are ways that you could look at it. That would mean that two plus two really does equal five. And so you can see all of this. Represented in the regime today, you can see it represented in Nazi regimes of the past, communist regimes of the past, and feudal regimes of the past, because nothing that we're saying today is new. The regime wants what the regime wants. It always wants the same thing. They execute the same playbook over and over and over again in different places around the world on different timelines with slightly different details that speak specifically to that area and to the time in which they're trying to accomplish the infiltration. And we can see who supports all of this. certainly isn't MAGA. I don't see MAGA out there demanding that the opinions of the other side are censored, that anyone subject themselves to forced medical experimentation. No one's out there encouraging the segregation of society. We're not trying to change the meaning of words. We're not trying to take Nazism and make it right wing and then attach it to whoever represents the right of center version of American politics. It's total madness. The same people support it now who have always supported it. People who want to be elites, people who want the benefits that the regime offers for compliance. And it should be no surprise that the descendants The direct bloodlines of people in these regimes are still in the regime and executing the program right now. And speaking of the same thing happening in other places around the world, I talked a couple of weeks ago about the elections coming up in Nigeria. We had Antony Blinken and Samantha Power and Linda Green Thompson, the U.N. ambassador releasing a video about how the American part of the regime was going to support elections in Nigeria. They were going to make it easy for everyone to vote. Well, what happened in those elections? This is from The New York Times on Friday, describing some of what's happening in the aftermath of those elections. The headline is Nigeria postpones state elections amid presidential vote controversy. Nigeria has postponed state elections that have been scheduled for Saturday, heightening popular anger and cynicism over whether the country can conduct a fair vote only two weeks after a presidential election tainted with technical malfunctions and allegations of fraud. Since the declaration a little over a week ago that the governing party's candidate, Bola Ahmed Tanubu, had won the presidential election, Africa's most populous nation has spiraled further into economic and political paralysis. Now the country's Electoral Commission has moved the election for the country's powerful state governors back by a week, saying it needs more time to reset digital voting machines used for the first time in the presidential election last month. The vote for governors is now scheduled for March 18th. The postponement of the election for Twenty eight of the country's 36 state governors is just the latest challenge faced by Nigeria, a country of 220 million people that has been plagued by fuel scarcity, a cash crunch and multiple security crises. And by the way, that cash crunch is partially at least caused by Nigeria's move to create a central bank digital currency and shift the currency in Nigeria. You know, speaking about the whole global regime agenda. Mr. Tenubu, a divisive figure in Nigerian politics, won the election with 36 percent of the vote. But the two other main candidates, Atiku Abu Bakar and Peter Obi, have called for a rerun, alleging vote rigging. A new vote appears unlikely, and Mr. Tanubu is scheduled to be sworn in on May 19th. What is all this sound like? Hopes were high ahead of the largest democratic election ever organized in Africa, and Nigerian officials recorded fewer instances of violence than in previous contests. But countless malfunctions from polling units that opened late or not at all to the sluggishness of ballot counting have eroded Nigerians trust. The electoral process remains chaotic with no improvement from one election to another, said Idiot Hassan director of the Center for Democracy and Development, a research and advocacy group based in Abuja, the capital. And it should be noted that the Center for Democracy and Development is about as regime a name as you could possibly ever find. The confusion over the elections has been compounded by a seemingly never-ending cash crunch. New notes introduced by the government just months before the election have remained largely unavailable, while old ones are not valid anymore. Last Friday, the Nigerian Supreme Court ruled that the use of old banknotes should be extended until December 31st because of the impact of the policy on Nigerians' livelihoods. But neither the government nor the central bank have addressed the issue, leaving most businesses, street traders, and even public bus drivers. Wary of accepting the old notes, even as some banks begin to distribute them again. In Lagos, Nigeria's largest city, one trader, Adelajah Adatun, was trying to gain access to a commercial bank on Thursday, her face beaded with sweat. The old notes I received from the banks are being rejected, and I need to return them, she said. Miss Adatun sixty seven said she was not interested in the state elections, especially since they had been postponed. That decision has left some analysts worried that the turnout on March 18th will be drastically lower than that of the presidential election, in which just over a quarter of 87 million eligible voters cast a ballot. It was the lowest voter turnout ever recorded for a Nigerian presidential election. In many ways, the state elections are as important, said Oge Anubagu, head of the Africa program at the Wilson Center a Washington-based research institute. States are grooming grounds for governors who want to be Nigeria's next president, she said. Both Mr. Tinubu and Mr. Obi are former state governors. Some governors oversee budgets that are larger than other West African countries. Ms. Onubugu said, The digital voting machines that need to be reconfigured ahead of the state vote are at the center of a controversy around the presidential election. Using the machines, election officials were supposed to verify voters' identities and to photograph result sheets in each polling unit, uploading them to a website publicly accessible shortly after the voting ended on February 25th. But the country's independent National Electoral Commission, known as INEC, failed to fulfill that mission, according to multiple observers. Instead, the results were uploaded days later, prompting Mr. Abu Bakar's and Mr. Obi's parties to accuse election officials and Mr. Tanubu's party of having manipulated the results. To countless Nigerians, the delays and lack of transparency left a bitter taste. INEC's performance has made many Nigerians feel that their vote doesn't count, said Joachim Makabong, a senior governance analyst at Steers, a Nigerian data and intelligence company. It's difficult to see how they're going to rebuild their credibility. International observers voiced similar concern. The number of administrative and logistical problems flawed the outcome. Johnny Carson, a former assistant secretary of state for African affairs in the Obama administration, who was in Nigeria to monitor the election, said this week. Officials from Mr. Obi's party have said that the results uploaded by the Electoral Commission didn't match those that party workers collected when the polling units closed. A representative for Mr. Obi, Duran Onafade, refused to provide the results collected but in a phone interview said the election had been marred by sabotage. Mr. Obi's team now has a few days to inspect the electronic voting machines before the Electoral Commission reconfigures them for the state elections. Oh, all the records are going to be wiped. In America, they call that a trusted build. Mr. Hassan, the Center for Democracy and Development Analyst, and Ms. Onobogu out of the Wilson Center, both said that a fair and functional Nigerian election experience mattered almost more than the outcome. Nigerians needed to be able to see that the process worked, said Ms. Onobogu. Instead, Mr. Hassan said, more and more citizens are losing trust in democracy itself because of these dysfunctions. So that is certainly a situation to watch as it develops. We'll see what happens. But the story for now sounds exactly as it sounds everywhere else. I've said this countless times. If you want to do a fun and relatively easy and quick dig, just type the name of virtually any country around the world and write Reuters and write election fraud and see what you start finding. Obviously, don't use Google. Use a good search engine. Those are naturally getting harder to find. I use Quant for most casual searches, and then I will occasionally use Jibiru, which is virtualmirage.org, and I'll use Freespoke occasionally as well. It's usually good to use a few of them in case certain results are left out of other search engines. And then you can tack on things like Open Society Foundation or Obama or Clinton, and you will find that there is always a candidate aligned with the regime, with Soros, with the World Economic Forum, who wins one of these elections where there are all these claims of fraud and all of the claims of fraud basically mirror the claims that we've seen in America and seen in Brazil and seen in Myanmar and seen in Burkina Faso and see now in Nigeria. You can have yourself a world tour of election fraud and see the same story playing out over and over and over and over and over over again. That's not a coincidence. It's not by accident. It is the same system being used around the world to steal elections and increase the domination and power of the global regime. But let's address another part of the regime's playbook. This is from Zero Hedge this morning. And I believe they're reposting the Epoch Times here. McCarthy says he will slowly roll out January 6th footage to news outlets. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he will slowly roll out the security footage recorded during the January 6th capital breach to news outlets. We will slowly roll out to every individual news agency. They can come see the tapes as well, McCarthy told Fox News' Sunday Morning Futures. That's Maria Bartiromo's show. Let everyone see them to bring their own judgment, he added. The first thing I found is that the January 6th committee was not honest with us, that it's not 14,000 hours of tapes. There's 41,000 hours of tapes. And it's worth pointing out, as I mentioned last week on the podcast, that Benny Thompson, the chairman of the illegitimate January 6th committee, said that neither he nor any of the members on the committee actually watched the security footage. He said they weren't able to access it. So keep that in mind when thinking about the January 6th committee, because we are still being told that the January 6th committee's investigation proves all of this video that's now coming out to the public, even though we've had most of it for two years, should still be ignored. The January 6th committee has already done their work. That was a bipartisan committee, very legitimate, and they showed the entire country exactly what the media had already showed the entire country. Just turns out to be completely and totally false. McCarthy has provided Fox News host Tucker Carlson exclusive access to 41,000 hours of surveillance footage from January 6th. The host then aired some of the clips on March 6th. Taken as a whole, the video record does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection, Carlson said during his program. In fact, it demolishes the claim. Footage shown by Carlson raised questions about QAnon shaman Jacob Chansley's time in the Capitol and U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick's death. McCarthy's decision to share footage with Carlson has been criticized by Democrats, including President Joe Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. When asked if he had any regret over sharing the footage with Carlson, McCarthy stood by his decision. I didn't give the tapes. I allowed him to come see them just like an exclusive with anybody else. My goal here is transparency. The top House Republican added that it was important to have equal justice, pointing to protest after the death of George Floyd in 2020. The one thing I understand in America, we should have equal justice, he said. What really raises the point with me is Why did I watch federal courts? Why did I watch cities burn federal agencies or something and nobody arrested there? I think we should have equal justice across this country. And it's really concerning to me since we've taken the majority. The things I have learned that government has done that withheld information from the American people that will not happen on our watch, regardless of what the information says or doesn't say. I think transparency is best and allow the American public to see it all. And the article goes on, but Kevin McCarthy is simply saying that other people will have access to this footage because that's one of the big complaints right now. It's only been given to Tucker Carlson and everyone knows he's a MAGA extremist, but also Tucker Carlson hates Donald Trump according to his text messages. And also Tucker Carlson knows that election fraud was just a big lie, but also now Tucker Carlson is saying almost constantly that election fraud wasn't a big lie. What's going on? And I love that stuff because the viewers of the mainstream media, the child brains out there still believing the central narrative 100% of the time, they don't know how to take any of this. Tucker Carlson is simultaneously the guy that lies to MAGA and hates Donald Trump, but he's also a MAGA extremist who's going to blow up the entire J6 narrative. How can it be? Well, Tucker Carlson was also with Donald Trump at his golf course a couple months back, laughing and having a wonderful old time. And Donald Trump just put out a truth post over the weekend where he said, well, I guess Tucker doesn't hate me too much, or at least not anymore. So Trump's having fun with it. Seems like Tucker's having fun with it. We're having fun with it. You know who's not having fun with it? All the child brains who are hooked into the central narrative all the time. The people who think, Oh, Tucker Carlson is your hero, and he says some things that are conflicting, and he said bad words about you three years ago or two years ago or whatever it was. You're still going to believe him? Oh, you got me, commie. Well, you've refuted the whole argument. You really got down right to the bottom of it and proved that Joe Biden really got 81 million real legal American votes and that January 6th was a very violent insurrection, even though no one came armed and no one tried to overthrow the government. All of that is proven because of some text you read a report about from Tucker Carlson or Laura Ingram or Sean Hannity or Jenna Ellis said, ooh, we knew this claim wasn't going to pan out. Oh, you got us, commie. Nailed us again with your incredible logic. Oh, so clever. So let's get into the business of this whole financial system collapse that we may be experiencing. We know that last week, Silvergate Capital folded Silicon Valley Bank went into receivership. Now Signature Bank in New York seems to be collapsing and there are other banks in trouble. But let's get started with this. I'm just going to try to jump around a little bit and catch some signal from a bunch of different sources because I'm not a financial expert. So my goal here is to be tuned into as much relevant information as we can be tuned into and then watch as the situation develops and see where we get more signal. This is from Fox Business Today. Silicon Valley Bank had more red flags than a CCP meeting, but regulators cared about climate, not bank risks. Despite schemes of bank regulations supposed to prevent another financial meltdown, Silicon Valley Bank, the country's 17th biggest bank, went down in flames last week. It was the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history and has prompted a lot of finger pointing. The 17th biggest bank. Wow, that's a big, big bank. Management messed up by not addressing a serious cash shortage until it was too late. Some blame Peter Thiel, saying the venture capital investors call for small tech firms to withdraw deposits from SVB accelerated its demise and Teal is one of the billionaire tech entrepreneurs that people believe, with good reason, is on Donald Trump's side. And so naturally, they would love to shift the blame to him. Others are critical of Goldman Sachs, SVB's advisor, who signed off on their ill-devised decision to try to sell equity, thus alerting investors to their capital shortfall. There's plenty of blame to go around, but when a financial institution goes under, you have to wonder, where were the regulators? After all, there were more red flags than you see at a CCP convention. Last year was a year for the record books and not in a good way. In response to the worst inflation in 40 years, the Federal Reserve undertook one of the most aggressive rate hiking programs in history. In response, U.S. investors sold down stocks and especially high multiple tech shares. The S&P 500 was off 18 percent in 2022. The Nasdaq dropped 33 percent. In addition, last year was the worst year ever recorded for U.S. bonds. The total bond index, which tracks high-quality U.S. corporate and government debt, lost more than 13% in 2022. Thanks to trillions of dollars in government spending during and after the pandemic and to massive money printing by the Federal Reserve, banks nationwide enjoyed a massive influx of deposits beginning in 2020. Most, including Silicon Valley Bank, put much of that money into investments like treasury bonds and other fixed income securities that nosedived when rates went up. Federal deposit insurance company, the FDIC, filings show that U.S. banks took over $600 billion worth of unrealized losses last year, a major red flag. Meanwhile, banks, including SVB, were slow to respond to rising rates and started losing deposits last year as customers took money out of checking and savings accounts to invest in higher yielding treasuries or money market funds. Bloomberg reports that commercial bank deposits fell last year for the first time since 1948 as net withdrawals hit $278 billion. Those issues, portfolio losses and declining deposits, caused SVB to fail. But the problems were not unique to that bank. Indeed, Signature Bank also collapsed for similar reasons just hours ago. Authorities should have been on high alert. They were not. Consider the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the body created in 2010 after the financial crisis, which was meant to avert just this sort of collapse. The council is chaired today by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. And includes nine other voting members, including Fed Chair Jay Powell, the heads of the FDIC and the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection and Gary Gensler, head of the SEC. Oh, wasn't he involved in that whole FTX thing, too? Oh, yeah, he was. And wasn't he the finance chair for the Clinton campaign? Probably just a coincidence. The council's website defines its task as, quote, identifying risks to the financial stability of the United States. The council last met on February 10th via video conference. The readout of that meeting shows the group previewed its 2023 priorities, which included, quote, climate related financial risks, non-bank financial intermediation, treasury market resilience and risks related to digital assets, end quote. Climate change, which it describes as, quote, an emerging threat to U.S. financial stability, end quote, is identified in the 2022 annual report as a key priority and has been one of the council's principal preoccupations for the past two years. To be fair, the council was also concerned about cryptocurrency related risks, non-bank financial intermediation and the resilience of treasury markets. Those were the issues on which the council was focused, not mounting portfolio losses and declining deposits. This is shocking. As economist Ed Hyman has pointed out, there has never been a rate tightening cycle without some sort of financial shock, like the failure of long-term capital management in 1998 or the bursting of the dot-com bubble in 2001. That's because Fed rate hikes are intended to drain excess liquidity out of the system and also to deflate overpriced assets like housing in 2008 or tech stocks in 2001. Because investors tend to move in herds, the process is rarely smooth. When people started asking for their funds last week, SVB faced a liquidity crisis. Their holdings had shrunk in value, so they tried to raise new capital by selling stock and preferred shares to tide them over. Going to public markets instead of private lenders was a mistake. Depositors were spooked and rushed to claim their funds, causing a bank run and the shuttering of SVB. Was anyone paying attention? As Peter Earl wrote in the American Institute for Economic Research, As of late December, SVB held 57% of its total assets in investments, while the average among 74 similar competitors was about 42%. Of those investments, $108 billion were in U.S. Treasury and agency securities, an asset class which had its worst year on record in 2022. Earlier this year, Earl also reported increased activity at the Fed's discount window. It is not clear whether that pickup in bank short-term borrowing signaled industry-wide distress or whether SVB was a participant, but it surely was another red flag. What does all this mean for the average American? Regulators have, in recent hours, arranged to cover depositors at SVB and for Signature Bank, which is also closed. They are also putting together a borrowing facility to stabilize other financial institutions caught in the downdraft. If the authorities can limit the contagion with these moves, and if no other banks are stricken, it will most likely calm markets and prevent a full-on panic. However, there will be damage. The Fed will be more cautious about raising rates going forward. While that means that car payments or mortgage rates won't go up as fast as recently predicted, it means inflation, the worst tax of all, will stay higher for longer. None of this bodes well for stock prices, economic growth, or wealth creation. Will President Biden still claim his economic plan is working? And I would guess the answer to that is yes, because what are they going to do? Admit that they are trying to destroy the country? Don't think so. They're going to tell us that this was just another speed bump on the road to progress. And if you're broke now, well, hey, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And you happen to be the eggs. Also, it's worth noting how funny it is that we are being told the real threat here is a contagion. You see banks collapsing. It's going to spread like a virus. And what we need to do is stop the spread. And we're going to need at least two weeks to stop the spread. The best thing we can do is lock everybody down, have all the ATMs wear masks and then inject all the banks with some sort of, I don't know, Uh, experimental and synthetic fiat regime bucks that will just create out of nothing. So let's move to Breitbart this morning. Joe Biden takes credit for creating lending invention to backstop banks after meltdown. President Joe Biden on Sunday took credit for creating a new lending mechanism to backstop banks after the banking meltdown over the weekend, in which two banks collapsed due in part to increased interest rates meant to tamp down Biden's soaring inflation. The new facility, dubbed the Bank Term Funding Program, will provide liquidity to, quote, help assure banks have the ability to meet the needs of all their depositors. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell and FDIC Chair Martin Gruenberg announced Sunday. The extraordinary measure quickly erected before markets opened Monday was praised by Biden, who also took credit for the financial invention. At my direction, Secretary Yellen and my National Economic Council director worked with banking regulators to address problems at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank biden's twitter account posted and i like how breitbart says that biden certainly didn't write this on his own his twitter account simply posted it i'm pleased they reached a solution that protects workers small businesses taxpayers and our financial system and they enclose a tweet from howard mortman where he attaches this clip of joe biden from december 5th 2016
2: so he started the Troubled Assets Relief Program, so-called TARP, which injected capital into the banking system and, in some cases, financed purchases of toxic assets from the banks. And before stimulus was a dirty word, President Bush pushed for modest rebate checks to taxpayers to try to stem the crisis and jolt the economy a little bit. And the President and I, President Obama and I, along with Republicans in the Congress, continued the TARP program to avoid a complete collapse of our financial system. Mr. Chairman, you know about anyway, voting for TARP, bailing out banks, was like putting a snake in everyone's living room. I mean, talk about the most unpopular vote. Any member of Congress, I really mean this now, I'm serious. The folks who, quote, caused the crisis, all of a sudden, we're making sure that we bail them out. It's hard to explain to average, well-informed Americans. But it was necessary. It was the right vote. and It helped save the economy. When all was said and done, TARP amounted to over $400 billion. But because we insisted it be paid back with interest, the taxpayers got it all back, plus $15 billion in interest.
1: It's kind of funny, isn't it, that they know the people don't like what they're doing, but the regime has needs and they're there to serve the regime. So what they do is implement the regime's policies and then try to convince people it was all for their best interest the whole time. Oh, we actually made you taxpayers a profit, you see, and we gave you this little pittance so that you couldn't say that we were hurting you. Just like when we destroyed your businesses during COVID. Isn't that neat? Steve Cortez was on War Room this morning, and he noted that In the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, we had the emergence of the Tea Party and the movement that eventually became America First and the MAGA movement. In some sense, that was caused by that financial crisis. And to take it one step further, and I believe this is the interesting part, think about how large that movement in America is now, facing another one of these financial crises. And if the Same thing happens if the response from the people is the same as it was after that financial crisis. Oh, MAGA is going to be very, very big at that point. But back to the article in Breitbart, Biden's decision to take credit for the new lending facility appears to contradict his prior position earlier in the day. According to Fox News, Biden was opposed to extending deposit insurance to those who deposited more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in banks, which the new invention now protects. And I believe this statistic I've seen is that 97 percent of depositors in Silicon Valley Bank had more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars with the bank. Silicon Valley VCs and CEOs getting word from the White House that Joe Biden is against any bailout of SVB, like extending deposit insurance well above two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Fox Business's Charles Gasparino scooped. That could change if the Federal Reserve does believe there's some systemic risk of bank runs, which there is evidence. And Gasparino's a bit of a clown. According to Biden's new mechanism, deposits beyond the $250,000 limit on FDIC insurance are available Monday, though the expense will allegedly not be transferred to taxpayers. The Treasury and FDIC's announcement of the program wrote, After receiving a recommendation from the boards of the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and consulting with the president, Secretary Yellen approved actions enabling the FDIC to complete its resolution of Silicon Valley Bank, Santa Clara, California, in a manner that fully protects all depositors. Depositors will have access to all of their money starting Monday, March 13th. No losses associated with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank will be borne by the taxpayer. We are also announcing a similar systemic risk exception for Signature Bank, New York, New York, which was closed today by its state chartering authority. All depositors of this institution will be made whole. As with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank, no losses will be borne by the taxpayer. Shareholders and certain unsecured debt holders will not be protected. Senior management has also been removed. Any losses to the Deposit Insurance Fund to support uninsured depositors will be recovered by a special assessment on banks as required by law. Finally, the Federal Reserve Board on Sunday announced it will make available additional funding to eligible depository institutions to help assure banks have the ability to meet the needs of all their depositors. It kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it, how the government is going to guarantee all this money be available, but that it's not also taxpayer money. Kind of sounds like they're giving everybody a runaround, doesn't it? Sounds like they're trying to say, hey, everybody, we know that none of you want to pay for this, so we're going to do what we need to do, and we're going to tell you that none of you are going to pay for this. Because the thing is, we just can't tell our very rich members of the regime hierarchy that they're going to have to pay for it. That's not an option. So telling you that you aren't paying for it is the best option. And they certainly don't want to pay for it. David Sachs, who's like Elon's guy on Twitter, he's one of the tech and finance bros on Twitter who have become so prominent in the last few years especially as people who were actually opposing the regime online were canceled and censored. Twitter basically became this place where all these very serious intellectuals who were rich and had some power and some influence began controlling the whole narrative for everybody else. These were the smart people. These were the gurus. These are who you had to listen to about everything. They've dominated the conversation on Twitter and they continue to. Yesterday, David Sachs wrote, we've reached a point of political division where it's fine to root for members of another tribe losing their bank deposits, even though you would protect members of your own tribe in the same situation. Be careful what you wish for because the shoe may soon be on the other foot. Well, what is he talking about here? He doesn't like that the people don't want to see Silicon Valley Bank bailed out by the government or any of these other banks bailed out because The people know who the investors are and what these banks are doing. Silicon Valley put something like five billion dollars into ESG related projects. And in a minute, we'll get to some of their other relationships. But the thing David Sachs is really missing here is that the shoe is literally always on the other foot. And so I responded to him yesterday on Twitter and wrote, it's crazy how out of touch you all are. No one is rooting for people to lose their bank deposits. We're saying we have no interest in bailing people out after they made poor decisions based on regime cultural incentives. And that is the basis for these poor decisions. They are on the global regime's agenda. That agenda is in direct opposition to the people, not only of the United States, but of the world. And we are supposed to be in favor of bailing them all out not as a favor to them when their economic engine crashes, but for our own good, because we don't want to risk the contagion. We need two weeks to slow the spread. And I said, you all didn't even risk your Twitter reputations to defend us while we were censored and debanked. And you want us to pay for your mistakes. And that's really what's going on here. And there's an interesting dynamic kind of, Underneath the surface on all of this. And that's that both agendas lead to, in some sense, a financial system collapse. The Great Reset agenda requires a financial system collapse. They've tried to collapse the economy in many ways over the past few years. I don't think anyone doubts that whatsoever. You could simply look at how they managed the whole coronavirus period. But they want to. Bring down the economy in order to introduce the cashless central bank digital currency. And naturally, that would exist in the same device that your social credit score exists based on your personal ESG contributions. It would have your medical records and your vaccine passport. And of course, they can track your location and your communications. They can tell who you were with and who you were talking to. And they can shut off your access to that digital currency whenever they want. If you don't support the regime agenda, well, you can't be part of their system. This is another way to coerce compliance with the regime. And of course, on our side, many people believe that it is necessary in some way for the financial system to collapse, to remove the global central banks from the equation. So a lot of people see these bank bailouts as protecting the rich from something that is ultimately inevitable for everyone else, regardless. The New York Post ran this story this morning. Top Silicon Valley bank execs worked at notoriously troubled Lehman Brothers and Deutsche Bank. Two executives at doomed Silicon Valley Bank had previously worked at a pair of notoriously troubled financial giants, the now shuttered Lehman Brothers and the scandal-scarred Deutsche Bank. The employment records of SBV executives Joseph Gentile and Kim Olson raised eyebrows on social media after the tech lenders rapid meltdown prompted fears of a systemic economic crisis. The feds were forced to bail out SVB on Sunday to restore public confidence in the banking sector. Gentile serves as chief administrative officer of SVB Securities, a standalone investment bank wholly owned by parent company SVB Financial. But prior to taking that role in 2007, Gentile was the chief financial officer for Lehman Brothers Global Investment Bank. Lehman Brothers was a Wall Street giant until it collapsed into Chapter 11 bankruptcy on September 15th, 2008. The firm's implosion had a devastating impact on the U.S. economy and was a key factor in the economic turmoil of the Great Recession. But it's good to know that he landed on his feet only to collapse another bank. This is from the Financial Times, Silicon Valley Bank's China venture in doubt as startups struggle to access U.S. funds. The failure of Silicon Valley Bank has left many Chinese funds and tech startups in the lurch as the collapsed institution served as a key funding bridge for groups operating between China and the U.S. Well, isn't that remarkable? SVB's abrupt takeover by U.S. regulators on Friday has also cast doubt over the fate of its joint venture in China with Shanghai Pudong Development Bank, which maintains a separate balance sheet and has total assets of around $3 billion. The Silicon Valley lender played a key role in China's dollar-based ecosystem for funding fledgling companies, industry insiders said with funds and startups holding money at the bank before bringing it onshore to mainland China. The run on SVB happened so quickly, with $42 billion leaving the bank's coffers on Thursday in the U.S., that by the time decision makers in China were waking up on Friday morning local time, attempts to rescue their money were already in peril. We tried Friday morning, but it was too late. The transfer is still processing said the founder of a Beijing-based tech company with about $10 million in limbo. It's very crazy we didn't think this could happen. The founder, who asked not to be named, was hopeful that a large American bank would soon take over SVB's U.S. assets and make his company whole. Half of their capital was held onshore in Renminbi at a separate bank, so they did not foresee any immediate payment issues, the founder noted. Several China-based venture capital firms said some startups in their portfolios faced similar issues of not being able to access funds stuck in SVB outside of China. The bank's collapse comes at a particularly tough time for Chinese groups raising foreign capital, with the ecosystem whipsawed by Beijing's tech crackdown, COVID-19 pandemic controls, and rising geopolitical tensions with Washington. Interesting how it's all sort of tied together like that, isn't it? It kind of makes you wonder, are they just worried about a banking system collapse or is the system they're worried about collapsing a much bigger thing? Dollar investments in the country's startups fell by nearly three quarters last year. SVB was especially popular among Chinese biotech groups that operated between the U.S. and China. More than a dozen tech and life sciences companies trading in Hong Kong list SVB among their primary banks, potentially jeopardizing millions of dollars that was destined for long-term clinical development programs. Xilab, a developer of cancer treatments with offices in Shanghai and San Francisco, is one such group. The company on Saturday said it had an immaterial $23 million Exposure to SVB with about 2.3 percent of its cash and cash equivalents held at the bank at the end of 2022. Chinese regulators are rushing to find a solution for SVB's local joint venture, in which the U.S. bank holds a 50 percent stake. The Shanghai branch of China's banking regulator held an emergency meeting over the weekend to discuss the problem, according to one person familiar with the discussions. SVB's collapse means that it might not be allowed to remain a major shareholder of the venture, according to Chinese commercial banking regulations. Zero Hedge published this today. Small banks are crashing. Over the weekend, when parsing through the carnage sweeping the U.S. banking sector, we analyzed which banks are facing the highest deposit-run risk in the aftermath of the SVB and now Signature Bank failures, and focused on a handful of names who have the bulk of their funding in the form of deposits, Deposits, which are now suddenly at risk amid what seems to be a major bank run. JP Morgan's Michael Sembalest, whose bank is poised to benefit the most from the ongoing carnage, chimed in with the following chart, which added an additional axis looking at loans plus securities as a percentage of total deposits. But which, after the new BTFP, that's the new invention, the new mechanism they're using, the new BTFP bailout facility is irrelevant since the Fed and TSY are effectively backstopping unrealized losses on securities. So we are really down to which banks have the most bank run risk, which, as we explained, are primarily America's small regional banks. How are they holding up today? Well, not good. Here is the KRE index, and he quotes Eric Balchunas from Twitter, writing that KRE is down 30% in the past week, a rare short-term plunge for something so diversified. Zero Hedge goes on, while its constituent members are having a very bad day, as the following headlines reveal. First Republic Bank halted for volatility down 65%. PacWest halted for volatility, dropped 41% to lowest on record. Regions halted for volatility after pairing 31%, dropped to 20%. Western Alliance sinks a record 76% halted for volatility. The take home here is that unfortunately, Joe Biden's 9 a.m. pep talk did little to boost confidence in small U.S. banks. Or as we put it earlier, it would be the savings and loan 2.0 crisis. But we regret to inform you there are no savings. Meanwhile, all hail J.P. Morgan, which is about to have some $18 trillion in deposits. And as a bit of an aside from the straight financial stuff, Representative Thomas Massey tweeted this last night. Just got off a Zoom meeting with Fed, Treasury, FDIC, House and Senate. A Democrat senator essentially asked whether there was a program in place to censor information on social media that could lead to a run on banks. People in the comments asked what the response was and Massey relayed the response was, we will get back to you on that. So a Democratic senator is asking for the tools to be able to censor people online in order to prevent this horrifying run on the banks. And I'm not suggesting that a bank run would be a good thing. But the idea that Democratic senators are asking for the ability to censor the American public from voicing their opinions on this based on, once again, the risk of contagion should give everybody flashbacks to exactly how the very deadly pandemic was handled in 2020. Remember what the playbook is. Create a crisis. Figure out how to profit from the crisis while further infiltrating and further implementing the regime's agenda. They've created the crisis. Now they want things to go their way. And what could stop them from that? Well, people actually knowing what's going on and being able to communicate about it. Donald Trump responded over the weekend on Truth Social. He wrote, With what is happening to our economy and with the proposals being made on the largest and dumbest tax increase in the history of the USA times five, Joe Biden will go down as the Herbert Hoover of the modern age. We will have a Great Depression far bigger and more powerful than that of 1929. As proof, the banks are already starting to collapse. This is something Trump has been predicting for a long time. I played some video of that on Friday. And I think it's safe to say that what we can take from this is that this situation is nowhere near over. And Trump posted this prior to the decision to bail out at least the depositors of SVB and some of the other stuff that's happened, Signature Bank and whatnot. And he's talking, of course, about Joe Biden's budget. But there's so much that happened last week. It's amazing that we are all stuck on this one issue. Again, not to say it's not an important issue. It's absolutely one of the most important issues of the day, but it's preceded by a whole lot going on last week. The exposure of the J six stuff with a big chunk of the public realizing that they were completely and totally lied to about all of that. Joe Biden's budget, the COVID narrative, breaking down Fauci's involvement, Nord Stream business, the Twitter files, the testimony in front of the House by Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, a bunch of other House hearings. There is so much going on. It's practically impossible to keep track of it all. And I mention that because I want to make it clear that I think probably the least important part of what's happening right now is the level of wokeness exhibited by Silicon Valley Bank. A lot of people online are focused primarily on that stuff. They are concerned that maybe their point's not proven enough. So we have to have the entirety of the woke conversation again and again and again when it comes to each and every issue. And that woke conversation is where the GOP establishment, where Conservative Incorporated, where the DeSantis simps, that's where they want to stay because then they don't have to actually talk about the real heart of the America first agenda when it comes to all of these things. The woke stuff is a distraction. It's where they can unify with people who imagine themselves on the center left. It is a very comfortable place for all of those people to operate, but we never want to get stuck there. All I'm saying is once the regime connections are established and we know the motives and the mechanisms, we don't really need to devote hours or days or weeks of research to figuring out just how woke Silicon Valley Bank was. In the big picture, watching how the regime responds to all of this is far more interesting than figuring out which ridiculous climate change tech startups Silicon Valley Bank was supporting. And before we go, I know that people may find this torturous and I'm sorry, but Joe Biden, the fake president, came out to give a very brief speech today and then run away from questions And because it's very brief, I figure I might as well play it, just so you know what the fake president is saying.
2: Before I uh, leave for California, I want to briefly speak about what's happening in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks, can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. Last week, when we learned of the problems of the banks and the impact they could have on jobs, of small businesses and banking system overall, I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. They've done that. They've done that. On Friday, the government regulator in charge, the FDIC, Took control of Silicon Valley Bank's assets. And over the weekend, it took control of Signature Bank's assets. Treasury Secretary Yellen and a team of banking regulators have taken action, immediate action. And here are the highlights. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills, and stay open for business. No losses, will be, and I this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that, because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. In my administration, no one, in my no one is above the law. And finally, we must reduce the risk of this happening again. During the Obama-Biden administration, we put in place tough requirements on banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including the Dodd-Frank law to make sure that the crisis we saw in 2008 would not happen again. Unfortunately, the last administration rolled back some of these requirements. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again and to protect American jobs and small businesses. Look, the bottom line is this. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. Let me also assure you, we will not stop at this. We'll do whatever is needed. On top of all of it, let's also take a look at a moment to put the situation in a broader context. We've made strong economic progress in the past two years. We've created more than 12 million new jobs, more jobs in two years than any president has ever created in a single four-year term. Unemployment is below 4 percent for 14 straight months. Take-home pay for workers is going up, especially for lower- and middle-income workers. And we've seen record numbers of people apply to start new businesses, more than 10 million of them, more than 10 million applications over the last two years starting businesses. Now we need to keep the program, this progress going. That's what swift action that my administration over the past few years is all about, protecting depositors, protecting the banking system, protecting the economic gains we've made together for the American people. Thank you. God bless you. And may God protect our troops. See you in California.
1: Mr. President, what do you know right now about why this happened? And can you assure Americans that there won't be a ripple effect? Do you expect other
2: banks to fail, Mr. President?
1: And naturally, that's when the fake president wandered off. So you see, everything is safe. The banks are not going to fail. Don't worry about any of that. It's all covered. My administration has taken quick, swift, decisive action to save everything for everybody. In fact, my administration is doing so well that everything was better than ever. I mean, before this happened, but because it was better than ever, then this isn't that big of a deal. And anything that's gone bad, you got to remember it's Donald Trump's fault. Now, sure. We've had banks fail before and we're having banks fail. Now, none failed while Trump was there, but we can say that he changed Dodd-Frank a little bit and Once we say that, well, that means it's all his fault, just like how he caused the Ohio train derailment and how he was responsible for the sky circles and how he's responsible for everything else. All we have to do is figure out how to say Donald Trump is responsible and Donald Trump is to blame. And everybody who voted for Joe Biden will just accept that answer and go out and tell Everyone else about it, and when all of those stories and excuses fall apart and become too embarrassing to ever repeat again, well, they'll just put another excuse in place and allow the system to march on. But one would think, and one would hope there's an endpoint for that, and I personally think we're going to be seeing that endpoint rather soon. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Maston lockdowns don't work. It's noon.
0: Hold up.